Welcome this morning and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 or page 939. I'm one of those guys who still has his baseball card collection from when I was a kid. I collected when I was maybe 10, 11, 12, and 13 years old. Kind of until I went to high school and met this pretty dark-haired girl and kind of forgot about baseball cards. But uh, at 11 years old or whatever, uh, baseball cards are kind of like middle school wealth. I would trade some, maybe, to my friends to improve my collection, but I never, ever remember giving away a baseball card. These, these were mine. We are collectors and accumulators by nature, not givers. Um, Our study today about giving could create some tension because of that reality that we keep stuff. We value money, and uh, we use money for everything. We, we, We pay for mortgages and medical bills. We buy eggs, right? Who can afford to egg a house these days? Uh, We uh, have essential streaming services and unlimited data, and there there are things we need money. And if we give away money, we're going to have less money. Do the math. And so it's unnatural uh, to give. Our passage today, though, is if this this whole idea of giving is is maybe a, a bit new to you, please understand that the key word in our passage today is grace. Not guilt, but grace. The pressure is off, and God isn't uh, here to pry our baseball cards out of our unwilling hands. But rather, we are going to see the story, first of all, of some Christians in the early church who were personally impoverished and yet pleaded for the privilege of giving. It's entirely unnatural, but it became their true nature because of that new nature that we have in Christ. So we're going to read these first five verses in 2 Corinthians 8 and try to follow the story. The two key places you'll hear mentioned are Macedonia, which is a region where Paul had planted some churches. And then, of course, realize he's writing Corinthians, so he's writing to the church in a city called Corinth. Paul says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace, that's a key word, about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and, notice, their extreme poverty welled up into great or generous, rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So he's describing really a miracle of grace that was taking place inside of the Macedonian believers. That though they were personally impoverished, they were eager to give. 
To understand these chapters, uh, we have to kind of know the, the history and geography and really what's happening financially in uh, the early church. So to kind of get a, a, a fast summary of how things were going, starting in Jerusalem in the first like 20 years of the church. Uh, Gonna take a look at this map first of all. It's, church began in, in Jerusalem, right? That's Christ, he died, rose again, ascended back to heaven. Holy Spirit came and the church began in Jerusalem. But Jesus had said, go and make disciples of all the nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And one of the things that God used then was persecution of the church in Jerusalem. And in fact, by the time you get to Acts chapter 8, you find that, that many of the Jews who were believers in Jerusalem had fled really for their lives. You can only imagine the economic impact of that. They were no doubt facing ostracization and maybe boycotting of Christian businesses. But the gospel goes out and we find them then going to places like Antioch. And Antioch becomes then the next like Christian center, that's where Paul was eventually sent out on these various missionary journeys. In Acts 11, we're actually told that in addition to the persecution that was being faced in Jerusalem, now a famine was coming. A prophet tells them there's going to be a famine all over the land. And so they send a collection or an offering from Antioch down to Jerusalem. And really, over the next two decades, the Jerusalem church is in financial need. Persecution plus famine. And so as Paul began to go around the, uh, the Roman Empire planting churches in these various places, he would not only plant churches, but he would also urge people to begin giving to the church in Jerusalem. And he'd be sending back gifts just to help take care of the basic needs. They were starving, many of them, in Jerusalem. So this is the area of Macedonia, and then that's where we find Corinth. And so as we read these first five verses, we re realize that Paul is actually, let's zoom in here, Paul is actually writing from one of the Macedonian churches on this journey, writing back to the people of Corinth and urging the Corinthians to give like the Macedonians had been giving to this continual need, continual project. And the basic observation of these first five verses has been that the Macedonians are poorer but eager and generous to give, while the church in Corinth had more money but they were actually procrastinating and not getting around to it. This is 2 Corinthians, but already in 1 Corinthians, verse chapter 16, Paul in the first letter about a year before had told the Corinthians just exactly when they were supposed to take their offerings and how they were supposed to start giving. And now he's writing to remind them to get going. So that's really the, the point of these first five verses. Notice in verse 2, that the Macedonians have extreme poverty, but if you jump to verse 14, it says that at the present time, your plenty, there was more money available in Corinth, your plenty um, will supply what they, that's the Jerusalem church, needed. So it's really that the Macedonians were kind of showing up the uh, little bit wealthier but stingier Christians in Corinth. 
The comparison is kind of like what Jesus uh, said one time to his disciples. He and his disciples were at the uh, temple there in Jerusalem, and they were standing there by the, the big money chest where people were bringing in their, their offerings to the temple. And it says that those who were rich were like dumping in large amounts of money. And then came this widow who dropped in two of the tiniest coins that there were, was in the Roman Empire. And Jesus, who knows the heart, said, I'll tell you guys something. These, these wealthier people gave out of their abundance. He wasn't criticizing them, but they gave out of their abundance. But this, this widow has given all that she has, all that she needed just to make, make it through the next day. And so that her gift was proportionately so much more. Sometimes in the news we'll read about um, huge gifts that somebody gets, you know, some, some notable person, a wealthy person, celebrity or whatever, and maybe they give hundreds of thousands of dollars in a donation to a, which is good, a humanitarian cause or something, and, 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 and it makes the front page because we, we know them and it's a huge amount of money. And you know, when I read that, I just kind of smile a little bit because I think of the dozens and dozens of individuals and families, probably just a part of our own church, that are giving proportionately far more. Because while the celebrity is giving these huge amounts, which doesn't affect their lifestyle at all, people are making sacrifices all the time that are affecting basic needs or what some would think would be just a, a very legitimate upgrade or something like that, and the gifts outshine the gifts that are huge with three more zeros or, or whatever it might be. And you've maybe done this for years uh, and as you've uh, cared about ministry and missions around the globe. So why would someone give like that the Macedonians or like so many of you have? Verse 1 explains it. It's a grace from God. The grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, we, we're acquainted with the word grace. We know that the basic meaning of grace is it means some kind of an undeserved favor from God. It's something that God gives us. That's grace. And so we think of the cross. That's the most basic form of grace. It will be in this passage as well. That, that uh, salvation is a free gift. We don't earn it. He paid for it all on the cross. And so we have the grace of God, undeserved favor. But what would be then the grace of giving? It's still something God gives us that we don't deserve, but it's this. It's God's miracle of implanting the desire and ability to give regardless of financial ability. So the grace of giving is not money necessarily at all. It's the desire to give and the ability to give, whether or irregardless of our ability. Because the contrast is pretty clear here. You see the combination of severe trial and overflowing joy. How often does that go together in your life? A pair of those two, right? Or this one, extreme poverty and rich generosity. So, something's happening here. This doesn't really compute in real life, except it does when God is doing the miracle of the grace of giving. Verse 3 says they gave beyond their ability. I mean, I guess technically, mathematically, that's not possible. You can't give more than you have, right? Except this is saying that indeed they gave more than they could afford and God continued to somehow supply that they could give. There was a miracle transpiring in them. That is the, the grace 
of giving. And so that they were, it says, even urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing. Uh, that word privilege is actually, and maybe your, some of your Bibles might say this, the word privilege is actually a form of the word grace. They, they pleaded for the favor, the privilege, the favor, the grace of giving. They really had this desire within them. So how does that happen? Is it something that kind of just, you know, comes over you? Is it repeatable? How does the, how does the grace of giving, the, the miracle of that desire and ability to give come? Verse 5, I think, is answering that question. They did not do as we expected. They didn't do what would be natural. Natural is digging some money out of the couch, you know, and <laughs> dropping it in the offering or something. But no, that, they didn't do what was natural. What did they do? They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So the giving to us is this, this horizontal gift, the money that would go to the people that needed it in Jerusalem. But there's something that preceded that, and what preceded it was that they gave themselves first to the Lord. There was a, a vertical decision. That's the first step. Before there is any grace of giving to others, there is first of all something that takes place between a person and God. It's a dedication of themselves to God. They gave themselves to God. This has been a series, as you know, on, on stewardship, financial stewardship. Um, and so we think about, and we've made the statement repeatedly, that God owns everything, right? Uh, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24, 1. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, God says. And we, we, we can theologically embrace that and go, yeah, I, I get that. God owns everything. But this is even a more ultimate form of stewardship because they gave themselves to the Lord. That is, everything. They gave everything. True stewardship transcends money and possessions. It's the shift that everything I am belongs to God. And then my finances is just one area that I will steward for God who owns it. Time is also all from God. So my time is what I steward. Anything we have. But first they gave themselves, after yielding ownership of all their life, it wasn't a big deal for them to then give up, be a part of that offering. Verse 6. So Paul writes, we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. So he recognized the grace of giving had been part of their lives. But he says, we urged Titus, who began this, to complete it. Well, who's Titus? Titus is one of the helpers of Paul. He was essentially a messenger of Paul. Probably he had delivered 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church when Paul wrote it. And now... Uh, sometime later, he delivers the second letter to the Corinthians as well. So he's saying, I, I urged him to tell you. So there was a grace of giving in Macedonia. Well, you guys have this act or grace of, of, as, as well. And so you need to get it done. Don't just say you're going to start doing it sometime. Verse 7, he, his encouragement is actually a positive one. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us. See that you also excel in this, 
Here it is, grace of giving. So he's not down on the Corinthians saying, you guys are awful people. Though in some ways you, you, you read 1 Corinthians and say they had an awful lot of things to learn. Maybe they had made some progress. He says, I, I see your spiritual progress, but here is still a vital spiritual piece of growth that is missing in your lives. You excel in these things. Make sure you excel in the grace of giving as well. Verse 8, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it to the earnestness of others. So he said, I'm not demanding this because we're going to see that the grace of giving means that there is freedom that God allows us to decide how much to give. He says, I'm not giving you a rule, but he says, I am kind of comparing you to the people in Macedonia, that they would be a motivation, a model uh, for you. So you, you, you heard about it, 1 Corinthians, now I want you to follow through with it. So it's probably valuable for us to go back to 1 Corinthians and see what were those original instructions that he had given them about giving. 1 Corinthians 16, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So this, this isn't a new thing. Uh, it's, it's mentioned in Romans. It's mentioned in, in it, was, it was told to the Galatians, even though we may not see that in that book. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. It says, I don't want to have to just, when I show up, you know, six months or a year later, that, okay, now we're going to take a big offering. But rather, it says, you need to begin to give regularly and proportionately. That's the basic New Testament principle. Uh, if you've ever heard sermons on giving, you've probably come across the word tithing. And the word tithing is really an Old Testament word. It's a word that means tenth, to give a tenth. And in fact, there's, there's quite a bit of evidence in the Old Testament that the rule of law was actually to give a, a tithe more than once a year. So it wasn't even necessarily limited to 10%, but it was a law that, that the Jewish people were to bring a tenth of their crop and a tenth of, of everything to the Lord. But you don't find a command about tithing in the New Testament. What you find instead is that in this age of grace, you find a principle that transcends the law of the tithe. And this principle is simply a principle of grace, which is regular, proportionate giving. In keeping with his income, he wrote in 1 Corinthians. Proportionate, so obviously some people give more than others. They have more than others. But there's freedom. The grace of giving is a grace principle. There is freedom. So if, if the 10% uh, the thing is a, is a good target for you to, to shoot for, then start to shoot for that. If it's as, others, as God leads others, uh, the, the tithing is not meant to be like a limit. There is no rule. It's just a principle of letting God direct you. And we'll see more about that in chapter 9 yet today. Just a little personal story. Uh, when Priscilla and I were first married, uh, we were in the middle of our, my Bible college years and uh, knew we had a lot of uh, schooling ahead of us. We had our uh, tuition to pay and uh, 
regular expenses on uh, small salaries she got working for the school and some part-time work that I was able to do. And so we were a bit financially tight and we knew we actually had three more years of college and four years of seminary coming up and uh, it'd be that long before I could uh, graduate and get a real job. This is my real job. Um, during that first year of marriage, there was a speaker that came to our church to speak on biblical financial stewardship. And we were, we were introduced, surely I'd heard it before, but to this, this idea of regular proportionate giving as worship to God. And so we began to do that. We, we used the, uh, the tithing, the 10% thing from the Old Testament. As we began to do that, in one sense, it was a huge chunk of our budget to now pay all the expenses and try to pay for tuition and everything else out of that remaining 90%. It was, it was huge to us, and yet it was kind of ridiculously small compared to the, the budget of the church where we were attending or uh, even the needs of the, the first missionary that we began to support. But it started us on a journey that we have never regretted and we have constantly experienced God's faithfulness in our lives financially. And I know that that story could be told just in different details uh, all around this, this room. But the most important thing that God did for us in that experience and in the following years has been the sense that giving is a combination of worship and trust. It's vertical. As we give... It is worship saying, God, you are worthy. As we sang, you are worthy of everything. All my praise, you are worthy. So the Bible says to honor the Lord with the first fruits of your wealth. So we're, you're worthy of that. And then the result is that we begin to trust the God that we have worshiped. And so it's his worthiness, and then we can trust a God who's worthy. His worthiness, we can trust a God who's worthy. So this is, this is, where, this is where stewardship becomes real. Because it's one thing to like biblically acknowledge that, yes, I believe God owns everything, but it's as we give that we are actually beginning to live that way. Because what we're saying is that we give this portion of our income or wealth as a way of saying, God, you own everything. And because you own it all, I can give this freely knowing I can trust you with what remains. I'm trusting you to take care of my other needs. So after telling the Corinthians the example of the grace of God uh, in the Macedonians, it's like now Paul gets to the really important point. Where does the giving or grace giving really begin? Verse 9, it begins at the cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is a, a beautiful, simple parallelism that gives the reason. So he's, he's telling them you know, to, to complete this, this uh, grace of giving, get going on it, and the reason, verse 9, begins with the word for, or here's the reason, it's because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we do that. Because he was rich. I mean, he owns the universe. He, he, he made it all. He has control of it all. He owns the universe, but 
He is a giver. And what he wanted to give was his love. He wanted relationships with people who could respond to his love. So he created us to give, he gave us life. And then because he wanted to be loved knowingly, he created free beings who he knew fully would sin. How do you give your love to someone who's going to reject it through sin? And so he made the ultimate sacrifice because there would be only one rescue plan in his quest to love sinners. And it would be coming to earth and paying the price for our sins. So the one who was rich became poor, became man, became human, lived through this ugly, dirty existence filled with sinners and sin. And he went all the way to the cross, humbled himself, became obedient to death, death on the cross. He became poor so that you and I, through his poverty, would become infinitely rich. So he could give us eternal life and we could live forever in heaven with him if we put our faith in him. So, so that grace he's describing, that is the basis of the grace of giving. You know, on one hand, we could say, maybe, maybe Paul should have let out the chapter with that. Start with the grace of God at the cross. But instead, he says, I want to tell you what it looks like in real life. I want to tell you about the Macedonian Christians. Now he says that you understand who they are and, and, and how they've given. I want to show you where it came from. It's that they have been so thoroughly infected with the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why they're different than the world around them. We started this series in 1 John 2, 14 and 15. If you, if you love the world, you don't love the Father. So, but if you do love the Father, then making a sacrifice like Christ is not natural, but it actually becomes normal. Well, verse 10 of chapter 8, all the way through chapter 9, verse 5, is some really important things uh, of Paul communicating instructions, explanations of how this gift is going to work. Um, one thing he points out is their sense of accountability. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. He's saying, uh, he was telling them that we're going to send the gift not just with one guy, but we're going to have some accountability here. So a couple of people that you trust will be carrying the gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. Great principle. And it's something that every church and Christian organization needs to take great care to be accountable. Uh, as a church, we have multiple uh, accountability safeguards to assure that, first of all, your gifts are confidential. Uh, Pastors do not know anything about what people give, and yet there has to be complete integrity and auditing by a few trusted leaders as well. Um, well, Paul goes to the, we're going to fast forward to chapter 9, verse 6, where he wraps up these landmark chapters on what it means to give by grace. And, and he explains how the, the miracle of giving just <clears throat> keeps multiplying. If the grace of giving is, first of all, that which God does within the believer to give us that desire and ability to give, that's a supernatural work of God right there, then what does it look like when that gift starts to happen? There is a whole domino effect of what God does when people give motivated by grace. The principle of verse 6 begins with a a farming metaphor. 
Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. It's a given, right, principle. If, you, if the farmer skimps when it's time to sow or, or plant the seeds, then uh, he's foolish because that's not a time to, to skimp. I remember uh, Dad every year would, uh, after the wheat harvest, he would take some of the best wheat from the best field and uh, put some of it in this trailer, seed wheat trailer, and cover it up and put it in a barn because if you sold all your grain for income and didn't have any seed wheat left, then what would you do next year? So you had to keep some of this seed, some of this wheat for seed for the following year because a miracle is going to take place every year. And the miracle was that one little tiny kernel of, of wheat would become a stalk that would create a head of wheat with multiple rows of grain so that that one small trailer full of seed wheat would become actually truckloads of grain that would become income for our farm family. So don't skimp on sowing, is Paul's obvious point. And then he begins to describe that there is a miracle of spiritual harvest. And he kind of walks through it. It seems to me to be somewhat like sequential steps. Uh, Verse 7, first of all, is like a a summary or application of what we just studied in the first part of chapter 8. Because step one is how that God's grace, not guilt, but God's grace will prompt cheerful giving. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. It's kind of a simple description of the fact that we have freedom in this age to give as God leads us. As, as you decide in your heart. It's the principle of regular proportionate is, is, a, is a principle, but it's not a rule. And so the, the issue would be that, first of all, because we have freedom, we have to pray about what does God want me uh, to give. Grace gives you freedom to decide. But he, there's an attitude check because he says, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So if you feel obligated, if you feel forced by others... If you, if you feel like someone's putting you on a guilt trip about it, actually stop. In fact, if this message hits you that way, just pause, okay? Relax, the pressure is off. Don't, don't give out of a guilt trip. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. God's joy in our giving comes when we give cheerfully. Um, let's just, I was thinking this week, what if, what if one of those super billionaires whose names you and I would know What if one of them got saved and decided, I'm going to give virtually all my wealth to ministry and missions to spread the gospel of Christ? And they could do that and do it cheerfully. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Just billions of dollars going into into ministry. While at the same time, uh, maybe maybe here at at Open Door, uh, you or maybe you and your spouse, if you're married, you decide, you know, we're going to start giving proportionately, regularly as, as our act of worship, and uh, you're able to do it cheerfully. Do you realize that God would be equally thrilled if the super billionaire gave cheerfully and if you gave cheerfully? Because that's the economy of heaven is the, is, the, is the attitude. Because no matter how much we ever give to the God who owns everything, we won't impress him. 
And even if we don't give anything, God's not scrambling to try to you know, take care of, of what he has to uh, all finance. The words of Jesus kind of rings through what Paul wrote here when Jesus said, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That is, cheerfulness with money is an indication of our heart. If you get a tax bill and it's like, you know, $100 more than you're expected to be, you'll pay it, but not cheerfully, right? Got a bomber, 100 bucks. But let's say you have a really special anniversary coming up and, and you're, you're going to do everything right and you know just the, the steakhouse exactly, what entertainment you, you want to have that evening and whatever, and you'll spend 100 or more bucks, right? Cheerfully. And the difference is that's something that is important to you. That's something you value. So you, you spend the same amount of money, but you spend it cheerfully. When I go on a, a motorcycle trip with a friend, and it's my turn to pay for the uh, motel, or you go have all the tolls or the gas or the, uh, whatever, the food expense, you know what? I really give that, spend that money quite cheerfully <laughs> because that's what I love doing. We are cheerful giving or spending money on that which is important to us. And frankly, I really think this is saying that God is willing to wait until our heart desires to give. That step of faith is taken cheerfully. So if we have freedom, how do you decide? How much to give and where to give it? Obviously, with freedom comes the responsibility to pray for direction. And I would also add this, that if, if you are married, a cheerful heart comes from a united heart. Uh, you want to find agreement uh, on that. Now, you're going to be different, probably by nature. And so maybe the one, uh, if this is your case, the one who wants to give more will have to be sensitive to the one who isn't comfortable giving that much. And that's okay. Or it could be that God works in a different way, and, and uh, maybe the one who wants to give less thinks, well, you know, I really do admire the, the faith of my spouse. Let's go for it. But, but either way, uh, relax, the pressure is off. Don't make it an area of disagreement, but rather find a place where you can agree with a cheerful heart. God loves that unity of heart, wherever that lands. The same goes for where you give, because you have freedom with where you give. That's something you, if you're married, again, you discuss, and you're, if, you're, if you're single, you, you, you work on that on your own, but um, the local church is obviously God's uh, major place of discipleship on earth, but there are missionaries that are planting more churches. There are organizations that are planting churches. There are organizations that are, that are Christ-centered, that are uh, meeting the needs of the poor. Uh, wherever you give, you'd want to make sure that they are Christ-centered, and you'd want to make sure that the individual organization uh, is teaching and propagating the truth as you understand the Scripture as well. But grace is so freeing, and God can direct us personally. It's unnatural, but it becomes normal because of the cross. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. 
So step one is to just uh, essentially decide within your own heart uh, that God's gift of grace is, is uh, transforming and motivating your cheerful giving. Step two is an amazing thing that God does as we begin to give. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And he quotes Psalm 112, as it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He explains the same principle further. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's God, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. There's this, this, there's this overwhelming sense, a domino effect of what God begins to do that all starts with the seed thing, right? But now this is where the seed uh, illustration kicks in. Sow generously, reap generously, right? But it's saying God will make sure you have enough seed to keep sowing. Many passages throughout Old and New Testament make the point that God uh, supplies when we give. This is one from Jesus. Give and it will be given to you a good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured out into your lap, for with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Making much the same principle, using a grain illustration again, packing it in, but God makes it overflow somehow. Now, if, if you've ever watched the uh, uh, prosperity preachers on TV, you've certainly seen this verse. And you've certainly seen uh, even the verse 6, so generously, Reap generously. And uh, the idea is if you give more seed money, then you'll get more money. But there's a very tricky, distinct difference. And the tricky thing is that they mix biblical truth with very unbiblical motives. And as we've just seen, the motive is everything. The idea of prosperity theology is give to get for me, which somehow then proves my, uh, my spirituality and uh, that wealth would then be the proof, uh, one of the proofs of my spirituality. That's not the biblical concept because what it says very clearly here is that God makes sure we have enough to keep giving. He may or may not increase our wealth. The selfish motive is to give so that I get more money, but the motive that honors God is that I give to watch God multiply my giving into a spiritual harvest. Did you notice that? Verse 8, first of all. So that having all that you need, he understands groceries, you will abound in every good work. It doesn't say that you'll be wealthy. But you will have enough so that you can do all the good works that God planned for you to do. It doesn't say that you'll be able to take exotic vacations or have, uh, have your dream house. Now, it could be that that's God's will for certain believers. That's not simply the point here, though. The point is that you'd be able to do the good works God planned for you. 
So it could be that as you, as you give, you'll have enough money so that you can take some time off to do a missions trip or, or some other form of service. It may be that as you give, God will uh, enable you to be able to quit work on time so that you can have an evening ministry, maybe helping uh, with the kids here at church. In fact, it says that in verse uh, 10 that you would be able to be generous on verse 11, generous on every occasion so that uh, while you're already giving regularly, but then you hear about this special need and amazingly what God does is he makes it possible. You can also be a part of that as well. Because the goal is not to become wealthy. The goal is to be able to do all the service, all the good works that God has in mind for you. And the quote from Psalm 112 is perfect in verse 9. It's actually Psalm 112, verse 9 also. Read the whole psalm sometime, but it's describing what God does in the life of a godly person. And this verse is saying, He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, so he's generous. What is it that survives? His righteousness endures forever. So he's not saying that it'll result in more money on earth, but it'll actually result in more righteousness on earth, something that has lasting eternal value. doesn't promise that our generosity will become a larger estate, but more spiritual fruit. Because he who supplies seed to the sower understands that you're going to want to continue to Give generously, so it's not giving to get, but giving to watch God supply. The result, verse 10, is a harvest of what? Righteousness, not wealth, not personal wealth, but a harvest of righteousness. It'll result in thanksgiving to God. This is getting to the really good stuff because bank accounts are irrelevant to God, but the economy of heaven runs on thanksgiving and praise. And that's exactly what generosity produces. Thanksgiving and in this, this unstoppable uh, waterfall of praise that goes to heaven. Verses 12 to 14 just, just continues it. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people there in Jerusalem, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And there's more. In their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. You've watched some of these domino videos, you know, you get that first little domino and it starts going, all this stuff that happens. That's what he's describing here. He's saying that, that in our simple step of, of, of personal generosity, motivated by the grace of God, it's like the first domino drops, boom, 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 boom. And all this stuff begins to happen. The, the needs of people are, are met. That, that is, first of all, in verse 12. So they will have more milk, bread, and eggs in Jerusalem. But more than that, there'll be these this overflowing expression of thanks. You know, the first, the first real benefit when you give to a missionary is not just that their needs will be met, but they are thankful that their needs are met. That, that's the first thing that happens is that they realize, man, there's, there's the people back there at Open Door. They care about me. They're supporting me. And I'm so grateful to God for the way they care about the same things that I'm here 
uh, doing. And this outward testimony as well. Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Our, our giving becomes a testimony to the life-changing power of the gospel because it's, it's one thing to believe, it's another thing to live the Christian life, and that just becomes a part of the testimony that, that that's where our investments are. And it's so unlike our world. It's, it's not more to enjoy. It's not more to make me secure. It's not more to make me feel proud of. I can impress others. It's, it's, it's more because I am investing in the values of Jesus Christ. And they pray for you, too. And in their prayer, their hearts will go out to you. So you, we, we talk about praying for missionaries. Who do you think missionaries pray for? I think top on their list will be the people who are giving to them. And so this, this prayer ministry grows because of the miracle of the grace of giving. You know, really, um, it's not a miracle when people are successful financially, usually. can be, but usually financial success comes from a combination of Hard work and initiative and opportunities and a dose of good luck, right? It, it's, it's a lot of, lot of effort. That, that's not necessarily a miracle. A lot of people are successful financially without a miracle, but this is a miracle. The grace of giving is a miracle God produces. And so Paul, in his closing line, just breaks into a, a statement of praise. He says it all goes back to this. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It all started there. The indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. I want to read a story. It's a little bit of a long story. It goes back to 1946. From Eddie Ogan, a grandmother in Colville, Washington, recalling when she was 14 years old and one of three sisters with a widowed mom. A month before Easter, the pastor of our church announced a special Easter offering would be taken to help a poor family. He asked everyone to save and give sacrificially. We talked about it and decided to buy 50 pounds of potatoes to live on them for a month. This would allow us to save $20 on our grocery offering uh, for the church. Then we thought that if we kept our electric lights turned out as much as possible, we'd save money on that month's electric bill as well. My sister Darlene got as many house and yard cleaning jobs as possible, and both of us babysat for everyone we could. That month was one of the best of our lives. Every day we counted the money to see how much we had saved, and every Sunday the pastor reminded us about the sacrificial offering. The day before Easter, my sister Osi and I walked to the grocery store and got the manager to give us three crisp $20 bills and one $10 bill for all of our change. We could hardly wait to get to church. On Sunday morning, I heard some teenagers talking about us Smith girls having on old dresses. I looked at them in their new clothes, but I felt so rich. When the offering was taken, we were sitting on the second row from the front. Mom put in the $10 bill, and each of us girls put in a 20. As we walked home from church, we sang all the way. At lunch, Mom had a surprise for us. She had bought a dozen eggs, and we had boiled Easter eggs with our fried potatoes. Late that afternoon, the minister drove up in his car. Mom went to the door, talked to him for a moment, and then came back with an envelope in his hand. We asked what it was, but, he didn't, but she didn't say a word. 
She opened the envelope and out fell a bunch of money. There were three crisp $20 bills, one $10 bill, and 17 $1 bills. Mom put the money back in the envelope. We didn't talk, we just sat and stared at the floor. We had gone from feeling like millionaires to feeling poor because we were the poor family in church. All that week, we girls went to school and came home and no one talked much. And finally, on Saturday, Mom asked us what we wanted to do with the money. What did poor people do with money? We didn't know. We'd never known we were poor. At church the next Sunday, we had a missionary speaker who talked about churches in Africa who made buildings out of sun-dried bricks, but they needed money to buy roofs. He said $100 would help put a roof on a church. The minister said, can we all sacrifice to help these poor people? We looked at each other and smiled for the first time in a week. Mom reached into her purse and pulled out the envelope. She passed it to Darlene. Darlene gave it to me. I handed it to Osi, and Osi put it in the offering. When the offering was counted, the minister announced it was a little over $100. The missionary was excited. He hadn't expected such a large offering from our small church. He said, you must have some rich people in this church. Suddenly it struck us. We had given 87 of that little over 100. We were the rich family in church. Hadn't the missionary said so? And from that day on, she writes, I've never been poor again. So like the Macedonian Christians 2,000 years ago, Eddie's family in the 1940s, our wealth is not really measured by our keeping, but the grace that God gives us that started at the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you have made us rich. We are blessed in heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. And our spiritual wealth came because you became personally, spiritually poor to leave heaven, to come to earth, to live among us, to accomplish and do the one thing that only could be done by your grace and your power by who you are as you went to the cross to pay for our sins. And then you have offered us the first most amazing gift, the indescribable gift of eternal life made entirely possible by your payment. I pray that you would just continue to uh, take each one of our hearts and transform us by your grace, not guilt, but transform us by your grace, uh, one issue at a time, one relationship at a time, one step at a time, season of life at a time. And may we be transformed day by day to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.